Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 for our Bible study. Um, We're not starting at the beginning of the chapter. We are going to start in verse 6 and read together for our text through the end of the chapter. So if you would join me in your Bibles, uh, chapter 4, verse 6. The Apostle Paul is the author. He is speaking to us tonight, and he says this. He says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. And so the same God who, when there was nothing but darkness, was able from the midst of that darkness to speak forth light from the middle of it, he says, just like that, God has shined in our hearts, as our hearts were once darkness, but because of Jesus, now there is the potential, the possibility, the privilege of light coming from within that place and illuminating what was once in darkness through Jesus Christ. And then he says, but we have this treasure, this light, this lamp in earthen vessels, or some translations say jars of clay. And what an amazing contrast that is between the light of the glory of God and the frailty of human flesh, Human jars, jars of clay. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. The contrast highlights where the power comes from. So he says, we, verse 8, are troubled. We being the earthen vessels, the jars of clay, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. Another contrast. We are perplexed, confused, but not in despair. Another contrast. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, so that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Another contrast between death and the resurrection life of Jesus. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, so that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death works in us, but life in you. We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, now he quotes from Psalm 116, I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore we speak knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might be, or might through the thanksgiving of many redound unto the glory of God. For which cause, for the cause of his glory, we faint not, but though our outward man these jars of clay our frail humanity though our outward man perish or is perishing yet the inward man 
the core of what we are on the inside, the invisible part of what we are, the soul, the invisible part, the inward man is renewed day by day. And so there be a pressure, a force opposing us on the outside, but a greater force that's overcoming that external pressure that's on the inside, on the core, in the core. For our light affliction, that which comes at us outwardly, the troubles, trials, pressures, confusions, persecutions, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, doesn't last forever, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So there's a relationship between the pressures that are coming at us from the outside and the glory that is overcoming those things and sustaining us on the inside. Those two things are related. Our light affliction is connected to the weight of glory while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, uh, this passage comes from this book of 2 Corinthians, which was authored by the Apostle Paul. And, and really, the theme of, of the whole book of 2 Corinthians is this issue of suffering or of tribulation or of trials, uh, difficulties that we face in this life. It's the common thread that weaves throughout the entire letter. He kind of touches it, hits it, then, then you know, explains, goes off a little and comes back to it. it. But it's the theme of the entire book. It keeps coming back over and over and over again. And I believe that the church in Corinth, though they were not in the New Testament the most spiritual, and they certainly weren't the most mature, and they weren't the most holy by any stretch, if you're familiar with the things that were written to them, you know that, and they certainly weren't the largest of the churches, I do believe that they were Paul's favorite. And the reason that I I believe that is because, first of all, I think they were the most real based upon the things that Paul wrote to them. They were the most transparent. There was no uh, um, wondering where they were at. They were who they were, warts and all. And for that reason, I think that they were the most relational with Paul. And the reason I think that is because Paul gets more personal with the Corinthians than he does with any other church. There's less teaching and more relating with this church and it seems as though in the in even the writings of the relationship there's this yearning that paul had this deep love and this deep affection for this church he's very personal with them and in his personableness he exposes to them his own sufferings more than in any other place in the new testament we read about some of the trials that he went through in the book of acts but he explains some of the internal struggles that were going on in this letter and how God used those things in his life to accomplish his purposes. Now, what you and I know, and you don't even have to be a Christian to know this, you could just be a human being, is that suffering is an equal opportunity condition, right? I mean, is there any one of us in here that isn't acquainted in some way with suffering? I mean, we could probably, all of us, write volumes about the issue. And we know that suffering doesn't just come in one form. Suffering comes relationally. We suffer because of the relationships that we have with one another. Suffering happens physically because of pain in our bodies or sickness or things that happen to us, and we suffer physically. 
Suffering can happen mentally. There's an invisible suffering that nobody else can even know about of things that are just going on in our mind or, 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 or you know, affecting us in some way in our soul. There's also suffering that happens situationally. We get into situations where we're literally suffering. We're stuck in something or there's something, uh, some conflict or we get ourselves into some kind of trouble. Sometimes we are the reason for the trouble. Sometimes we're the victim of the trouble, but it produces suffering in our lives. And sometimes suffering falls under the category of undefinable, right? We're suffering and we don't even know why. We can't explain it. We can't articulate it. We can't even go get, a, get out a book or, or do a Google search about it because it's that undefinable. It's just there's, uh, there's some unsettledness, some suffering that's going on. Well, here is what you need to know about suffering and the Christian life or in life in general is that suffering is a promise from God. He does not say, I hope that you're not one of the unfortunate ones that suffers while you're living life in this world. He doesn't say that. He actually goes out of his way to guarantee that it's going to happen. You are going to suffer in this life, in this world. It's part of the fallen condition of humanity. David would say in Psalm uh, chapter 34, verse 19, he would say that many are the afflictions of the righteous. Thankfully, he Adds on to that, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said, in this world, you shall have what? Tribulation. But then he says, be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. The apostle Paul said to one of the churches in the book of Acts, it says in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, he exhorts them and he says that through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom of God, that there's going to be trials and that there's going to be trouble. Jesus said in another place, he said that the rain falls upon the just and the unjust. He also said that the sun shines upon the just and and the unjust. Both of those two things can be either pleasant or painful, depending on the circumstance. And what Jesus is saying is that everyone is going to feel this. It's a, it's a, it's an issue that we're going to face. The entire letter of first Peter is all about suffering from start to finish. Peter talks about the place of suffering. So it is promised to us that we're going to suffer. Another fact about suffering, not only is it promised to us, but this is just practical, is that suffering is universally avoided. Meaning that every single one of us will go way out of our way to avoid suffering. Anybody in here suffer with a lack of patience? How many will drive an extra 20 minutes out of the way just to not have to wait and stop and go traffic or to wait? I will right? We, we, I would say probably 99% of our decision-making any given day has in it the factor of avoiding suffering somewhere in it. What is going to be the easiest thing to do or the pain, the most painless thing to do in this situation? We avoid suffering. But here's the third fact about suffering, and that is that God leverages suffering to fulfill his purpose in our life, and he uses it in amazing ways. He does not subject us to unpleasant situations or pain or suffering because he thinks we need a rite of passage or because he wants to chastise us or let us know what, what our sins have cost. That's not why. He allows suffering because he uses it 
And I present to you the premise that it is for one, for one individual purpose, and everything else kind of flows out of that. One great and necessary work that I want to share with you tonight. But that work that God accomplishes, what God does in using suffering in our lives, reaches to the very core, the very core of our existence and our reason for living. And so the title of the message tonight is Hardcore Suffering. Because that's what God is doing in our lives. And so uh, um, what we have in this text that we have before us is we have Paul giving to us a summary of four different areas where he himself suffered. Uh, He starts in verse verse 8 of the passage in chapter 4 by saying that we are troubled on every side. And so the first area of suffering that Paul talks about in his own life is situational suffering. He says that we are troubled on every side. And so I looked up those words and what they mean. And what the word troubled means literally is crowd-pressed. And so if you can just imagine yourself for a minute in the middle of a crowd of people and all of a sudden that crowd of people just gets closer and closer and closer to you to the point where you feel like you can't even move and you're just going to suffocate in a sea of people, that you're crowd-pressed. Now, that would be bad enough if it was just that. But he says that we're troubled or crowd-pressed on every side. And so now it's compounded. It isn't just that we're pressed in on one side of what we're facing, but we're crowd-pressed on every side of what we're facing. This past Monday was Labor Day. And, uh, and so it was kind of like a day when, when everybody was in my house, nobody was working, we were all uh, home and present. And I had this, this amazing ambition that I was going to spend time with all five of my kids individually. And so I started by, by going to the gym with my oldest, and we spent some time together. I had plans to take uh, one of them to the batting cages. I had plans, and I had, I had plans. I made one out of five. I made it to the gym with my oldest daughter, and the rest of it was a complete fail. And I just felt like, here, here is this one side, just my family life. And in order for me to meet the demands that just what's on that one side, my family, could be a full-time thing. And I'm never, ever, ever going to measure up to what is needed of me or asked of me just on the family side. Then I woke up Tuesday morning to begin in my work week here. And the first thing I did is I looked at at what I had for the day and for the week. And I looked at the, okay, I have staff meeting. I have to study. uh, I have um, preparation. I have people that I have to call and calls I have to return. I have a meeting for kids ministry. And, And all of a sudden, I was overwhelmed with all of the things that I had to prepare for and, and, and tackle in just that day, just looking at what was in front of me. And that was on the other side. What I realized is that just what's on this side of me could demand 100% and more than what I could give to it. So now I've got what's in front of me. I got what's on this side of me, you know. And then I came home from work and I saw that my woodshed is only half full. And so, oh, and I thought, and then my wife handed me a hammer and a nail 
and some things she wanted hung up around the house. And I thought about all of the unfinished projects that my house is demanding of me. Now, please, this is the part in the study where I know someone here is going to say, oh, I'm going to bring him some firewood or something. As if, no, 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 don't do that because that's my therapy. I need to get the firewood ready. Otherwise, I'll explode inside. You know, so don't, don't try and help. I'm not complaining about any of this. I'm just explaining that my life is just like your life. You know, so what my house demands of me on this side is more than what I could give to it if I could give myself completely to it. On top of that, somewhere underneath the refrigerator is a list of personal goals. There's a stack of books that I'm supposed to read. There's a stack of emails that I haven't replied to. There's a stack of requests from people for things. There's a a, a list of relational responsibilities that I have to just interact with people that is overwhelming when I look to what's on that side. And I could give myself 100% to that and never, ever accomplish everything that's on that list. And on and on it goes. And what Paul is saying is that we are crowd-pressed on every side. Every area of our life demands more of us than what we can realistically give to it or respond to it. He says, that's a reality in my life, just like it is in your life. So situational problems. He says, secondarily, he says that we are perplexed. He uses that word in verse 8. It's the word confused. So this is a mental type of suffering that Paul the Apostle was enduring. Is that constantly, every day, he had to wrestle with the question of whether he was answering his calling correctly. He was confused about his calling. He was confused about his purpose. He was confused of whether or not he was in the will of God, in the place that he was supposed to be. If he was on time in his progress as a Christian or in the right place, if he had vision and he was confused in his heart and in his mind concerning his, 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 his place, where am I supposed to be? I'm confused. And that was an issue. Another area of his life that he was suffering was relationally. He said that we are persecuted. That means that there are people in my life that don't like me. And they are living to make my life more difficult. And I feel the persecution of of people, but I also feel the persecution of something that's invisible, an invisible force that's coming against me. I also feel the persecution of my past that's trying to catch up with me and that's constantly saying, you're going to be found out about this. You're going to be found out about this. I'm, I'm feeling the pressure of this persecution. And then finally, he was suffering progressionally. He says that we are cast down but not destroyed. Cast down means knocked down, meaning that there were things, there were certain things that were getting through the shield of protection and that were actually knocking him down. He was getting bad news about things that were going on in people's lives. There were issues that were coming up in churches that were knocking him backwards and saying, making him say to himself, is this even working? Is this, is this even real? You guys know what that's like when you're following the Lord and all of a sudden you get the news that one of your kids is in trouble or one of your kids has been smoking marijuana or, you know, you find out that one of your kids has has a total secret identity on some social media platform and they, they have this whole other life or, or something happens, you find out bad news about a spouse or you get a diagnosis and it knocks you down. You weren't expecting it. It came out of nowhere. You weren't ready for it and you feel like Mike Tyson just got through. 
and you feel like you're on the ground. And Paul said that all of these things are real in my life. But, he says, that there's also this other dynamic that's at work in my life so that even though in spite of the fact that on every side I'm crowd-pressed, he says there's something on the inside, a greater force that's working so that I'm not stressed out about it. He says I'm troubled, but I'm not distressed. All these things are going on, but it's accompanied with this peace on the inside that's causing those things to not do what they were intended to do. I'm not distressed, even though I'm crowd-pressed on every side. He says, even though I'm perplexed or confused, and I should be in despair, meaning I should be without hope, I should feel lost. He says, I don't. I'm not distressed. Distressed means stuck. (laughs) He says, I'm not distressed, or I mean uh, despairing, without hope even though this is happening in my life. He says, I'm persecuted. People hate me, but yet I don't feel alone. I don't feel hurt and wounded. I don't feel upset about the fact that people aren't coming through the way I hoped that they would or doing the things that they should. I don't have that feeling as though I've been abandoned by people that I put my trust in, even though they're abandoning me. They're hurting me. They're wounding me, but I don't feel that. And then he says, I'm cast down, I'm knocked down but I've never been knocked out. For every blow that I've received, there's something on the inside that keeps me coming back, keeps me standing up. You ever seen the movie Cool Hand Luke? If you're, if you're old and gray-headed in here, you probably have. You know, I see like that nostalgic nod in some of you. You know, it's one of those black and white films, you know, from way back when. You know, but about this, this prisoner who you just couldn't knock him down, you know, no matter what. He got in a fight, and, and he was just overpowered. He was beaten. He would keep getting up. He would just keep getting up. That was Paul. He was cool hand Paul. And he just kept getting up. He says, these things, you would think that, that after all of this bad news that just keeps coming and coming and coming, that I would just give up, that I would quit. He says, but there's something inside of me that keeps me standing, even though all of these things are saying to me, don't get back up. What Paul is telling us is that there was something going on on the inside of him that although the pressures that were facing him on the outside were equal to what everyone else is going through and that were enough to take him out, yet the effect was different. It wasn't knocking him down. It wasn't ending his life. It wasn't robbing him of hope. He was standing in spite of these things. Now, I want you to know this, that it wasn't always like that for Paul. That Paul didn't always have a greater inner strength than opposing forces coming at him. We know that because back in chapter 1, and you can look at it, back in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, Paul begins his letter by saying to them in verse 8 these words. Listen carefully. He says, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us while we were in Asia. He says that we were pressed out of measure beyond anything that I can even explain to you in language above strength, meaning it was stronger than we were even on the inside. Watch this in so much that we despaired even of life. 
Paul's saying that the pressures, the troubles, the trials, the confusion, the blows that were coming to us while we were in Asia were more than what we could handle even spiritually. And we came to a point where we wanted to die. We we concluded it would be better for us to be dead than for us to go on living. God allowed suffering to be greater than what Paul could spiritually, mentally, or physically endure. You say, why? Because watch what effect it had. Verse 9. He says, but we had the sentence of death in ourselves... Why? Watch this. So that we would not trust in ourselves. Do you see those words right there? The reason for this suffering in the mind of God, the reason why God was allowing this to happen, Paul says, was so that we would learn not to trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from such a great death, and does deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. So what did suffering produce in Paul? This pressure, this trouble that was beyond his own strength, it produced a dependence upon the Lord, which then led to a deliverance, which then led to a confidence, a hope that God is going to continue to sustain and keep us as he has even in the past. The Bible tells us that we are made in the image of God, that we alone, singularly and uniquely, of all of his creatures, that we bear his image. And the one attribute that we have that separates us from all of the rest of creation is that we possess what the Bible calls a soul. And what the soul is, really, is this hollow core this invisible internal space inside of us that you can't see with your eyes but that is where we think it's where we feel it's where we choose it's where we relate to god and to other people that is the thing that makes us different now the bible calls this thing something oftentimes what it calls it at least in the english translation is it calls it our belly which is kind of a bad translation, but the word belly that's used in the Bible, it's the word koila. What it literally means is an empty space or a cavity. And what that is, is a hollow core, this thing inside of us, and it's the thing in us that longs for God. And the degree to which our soul, this hollow core, the degree to which this soul of ours is filled is the degree to which we experience a feeling of wholeness, an unspeakable joy, an energizing conviction that life makes sense, that we fit, and that we're doing what's important and that what we do is important. When our soul is full, we have this vibrancy, this feeling of life. But when our soul is empty, we have this unbearable ache, this throbbing loneliness that demands relief, a morbid sense of pointlessness that drives us to anger and cynicism and frustration. And and that's how the soul works. When it's full, we're satisfied. When it's empty, we feel the ache. It's the greatest form of suffering that exists in all of humanity, the feeling of an empty soul. Now, at the fall, not the season, but the event, right? When Adam sinned against God, 
and he disobeyed. And, and God said, the day that you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. When Adam partook of that fruit, he was cut off from the life of God and he immediately felt the vacuum that was created in his soul. Because he was no longer in fellowship with God, he was no longer satisfied. And thus he passed the condition of emptiness or the hollow core, he passed that condition onto all of humanity and that became the root of all suffering. Now, nature hates a vacuum. And so every vacuum is always going to demand to be filled. And so mankind now, made in the image of God, having an empty soul, has a longing to have the soul filled. And so what humans do, and this applies to you and I today, whether we're saved or unsaved, and that is that when we feel the emptiness of our soul, we will do either whatever we can to fill that void with something or to numb the ache of the emptiness so that we don't feel the fact that it's empty and aching. And we'll try to fill it. And so what do we do when we're feeling empty? You know what we do? We call AAA. Remember AAA? AAA was when your car broke down and you were in trouble, stranded on the side of the road. We call AAA. And so AAA, there's three things that we do when we're feeling empty inside. Number one is that we have addictions. There's things that we become addicted to, things that give us a false sense of fullness. An addiction can, can be anything that I'm using to fill the hollow core. It doesn't have to be drugs. It doesn't have to be alcohol. It doesn't even have to be something that's necessarily sinful or illicit. It's just something that I, we would maybe even call it a vice. It's the default thing that I turn to to try to find relief when I'm feeling an ache inside. And so for me, I, I, for me that could be the gym that, you know, I could, that could become a thing where it's just, that's a comfort for me to, to go to the gym. It could be other things. For some people, it could be money or spending money to just acquire things. They're just, oh, you know what? It would take the pressure off right now if I just went out and bought something for the house. And so I'm going to go do that. For some people, it could be a goal is that I'm filling, I'm filling my soul. And, and what, what's happening is I'm setting a goal for my life and, and pursuing that goal is numbing the feeling of ache that I have inside because that goal is promising me fullness. So as long as it takes me to get where I'm going, I can ignore the fact that I'm empty inside because I'll tell myself that the completion of the goal is the thing that's actually going to satisfy me. That's a dangerous one because that's why you see a lot of people that make it to the top in their area or their arena end up derailing when they get there. Because the thing that they've been pursuing for so long that they thought was going to satisfy them actually didn't. And so now they've got to try something else and they've wasted a lot of time so they're in crisis mode. It can be literally anything that we turn to to self-satisfy or self-medicate. It's addictions. Another thing is attitudes. Another way that we defend against it, and this might not be a false filling but, but this could be just a defense to numb it is that we turn to attitudes because we were made in the image of God, so we were made to relate with other people. And so part of what fills us is the relationship that we would have with God or with others. And so we come up with attitudes that become for us kind of a defense. Maybe we have an attitude of arrogance and we use the attitude of arrogance to keep people at a distance. 
You know, we don't want people close because people, people are painful. People can hurt. And so we adapt that attitude of, of arrogance, sometimes an attitude of intelligence. We put on like we're really smart, and that intimidates people. And so we're impressive, but we can't be intimate. And so it keeps people at a distance, and it's a defense mechanism. It's something that we're doing to defend against pain that we would feel on the inside. Not just attribute or attitudes, but sometimes attributes. And this is where it starts to go deep. Can I go deep for a minute? <laughs> because sometimes we adapt attributes in the same spirit of trying to defend ourselves. And so maybe we, we take on the attribute of shyness. And I say, well, I'm a shy person. But, but really, that, it isn't that that's so much a part of our personality as much of a decision that we made at some point where we feel like, well, I, I'm not valued or I'm not valuable enough to contribute anything. So rather than ever being put in the place where that can be discovered, the best defense mechanism I can have is that I'm going to put up this front of shyness so that people don't even approach and try. They just go, go the other way and I'll just look pretty and I'll get through my life that way. Sometimes people put, take on the attribute of a, of, a, of a strong sense of humor. You ever seen the clown, right? You know, the person that is so witty, they're gifted, and they can just reply, but that almost becomes a defense, and you can never get past the shield of their humor. There's no intimacy in that. They're, everything is just a joke. Everything is a joke, but there can never be a serious moment. Sometimes there's a tough guy attribute, right? That's, that's again, it's, it's a source of defense. Like, don't come near me, you know? Like, don't even, you know? You know, it's that tough guy. I'm not, obviously, no, I'm not the tough guy, you know. I'm the shy guy, you know, that's my, that's my default, you know. But that's what we do. We find ways, we find ways to either fill this void that's inside or numb from feeling the pain of the fact that we're empty, that we're not complete, that we're not what we're supposed to be. All of these things, whether it's an addiction or anything else, all of these things have some reflection or, or, or a line drawn back to the fact that we're made in God's image. We're trying to satisfy something that God created us to experience and enjoy. We want to feel joy, and so we put things in our body that will trick our body into feeling joy. We want to feel like we're making an impact, and so we'll do things that give us the false sense that we're making an impact, you know, playing games that we win, that give us the sense of accomplishment. Now, all of those things are things that God has put in us. He wants us to be joyful, but where does that joy come from? He wants us to make an impact, but what's the source of that impact and the reason for that impact? And so all of the things that we do, we do to try to fill or numb this vacuum, this hollow core that's inside of us. That's what humans do. Now, all of those things, and here's the great sin that exists in all of it, is that what that is, it is a spirit of independence. It's a spirit of independence. And what I mean by that is this, is that we are independent of God trying to fill something that only he can fill. I'm saying I don't need God or I'm not trusting God to fill my life in the way that he wants to. And so I'm going to control the status of my soul and I'm going to take care of it. It's an independence from God in the way that we're, uh, lost my place, <laughs> filling uh, the thing. Now, that can happen to both Christians and non-Christians alike. That we can, independent of God, try to fill what's going on inside of us. 
the prodigal son. Remember when Jesus told that story about the, 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 the one son and he came to his father and he said, hey, I want the portion of the goods that falls to me and I'm going to go out and do my own thing. And so he goes out, he spends all that he has. He comes to a place where he has nothing left. He gets a job feeding pigs, right? And what does he say? He says in, uh, the, what is it? It's, is it up there, Luke something, Luke 15? I gave it to you, right? Yes, thank you. It says that he would fain have filled his belly, the hollow core, the coilia, the cavity. He would have fain filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, but no man gave to him. He realized that I am so empty in this place that if I could even eat what pigs are eating, I need something to fill this. But even that isn't filling. What did it do? It drove him to the place where he would return to his father's house. In Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, the apostle Paul says this. He says, now I beseech you, brothers, that you mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. For they are such that serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches, they deceive the hearts of the simple. In other words, there are people, even in Christian circles, even in Christian influential circles, that, that aren't coming to you from the place of being full of Christ, but rather they're coming to you and everything that drives what they're doing is that they're still trying to satisfy something on the inside. They're following the impulses of their own gut. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, he, he, said, um, he said, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction and whose God is their belly. They're independent of God and they're trying to fill themselves up. They live completely to just satisfy themselves. And it says that their glory is in their shame and their mind is upon earthly things. Now, Here's one of the most profound things that Jesus ever said. John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38. He stood up on the great day of the feast and he said, if any man thirst... He said, let him come to me and drink. And out of his belly will flow torrents of living water. As the scripture has said, he says, so Jesus made the claim that he is able, not from the outside to introduce something, but to start on the inside and to fill from the deepest place the hollow core that brings satisfaction to all of man. What an amazing promise that he gave. It's probably one of the most amazing claims that he made. But what does it mean to come to Jesus to have the filling or the satisfaction on the inside? It means that I yield in trust that he's the one that's going to fill me up. That I don't have to turn to outside things and I don't have to numb myself so that I don't feel the pain of the emptiness, but I can turn to him and that he can fill up the void, the hollow core that's on the inside. So to come to him for the satisfaction of my soul core thirst is actually an act of repentance because what I'm doing is I'm repenting of my independence and I'm turning to him in trust and dependence that he can fill what I'm not able to fill myself. Now, here's what, here's what most Christians do. And I, and I know this because I've done this. 
is this is where our error is, the mistake that we make, is that we come to Christ and we repent of our sins, the acts of our sins, drinking, smoking, womanizing, lusting, stealing, laziness. You know, we, we repent of the action of our sins. But when we come to him, then what we do is we adjust and adapt our list of things that we're going to fill ourselves with so that it's a sanctified list. Okay, so I'm no longer going to fill myself with alcohol. I'm no longer going to fill myself with greed for money. But now I'm going to fill myself with busyness. I'm going to fill myself with a goal. I'm going to fill myself with amusement. I'm going to fill myself with movies that are rated PG or G. You know, I'm going to, I'm still going to fill. I'm still going to answer the demands of this empty space that's inside of me. I'm just going to change what it is that I'm allowing to do it. That's not dependence. That's independence that has the facade of dependence because the things are allowable. They're excusable. They're justifiable. But I'm still empty inside. I'm still miserable. I'm still confused and overwhelmed because I'm still in control. I'm still trying to do what only he can do. That's what we were made for, to be in relationship with him, sanctified soul fillers. Now, Paul, in the text, and us, he says his suffering, the pressures that he was facing, the persecution he was enduring, the confusion that he was feeling on the inside, those things became so great in his life that he could no longer keep up managing his own emptiness. And it overwhelmed him to the point where the pressure was so great that he says, something's got to give or I want to die. That's how bad it was. And he said, what that did for me is that it led me to the place where I no longer trusted in myself to be my own defender, to be my own preserver, to be my own satisfier, or to be my own helper. I yielded completely to let Jesus be the Lord of my life in every way and to be the one who fills, leads, helps in his way and in his time. And Paul says that is what made all the difference. Here's what he did. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. He said, it brought me to the place where he says that I have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. He says that I'm no longer going to be in control of my own life where, where I have this thing where there's hidden things in my life. On the outside, you see me as one thing, but on the inside, I know that there's something else altogether going on. So they're not going to do that anymore. I'm done living a hidden life. He said, we've renounced the things of dishonesty. He said, there were areas of my life where there was duplicity at one point, where, where I was just kind of being dishonest. I was calling it one thing, but it was really something else. I was saying it was for health, but really it was about ego. You know, my excessive gym going, you know, oh, it's just for health and energy. No, it's because I want to look good. Paul says, I've renounced it. I'm no longer going to be dishonest. He says, I've renounced craftiness. Craftiness is sleight of hand. Sleight of hand is where things look like something, but they're altogether something else. It's a hidden thing. He says, we've 
gotten rid of all of that. And he said, I've come to the point where by just manifestation of the truth, meaning that what I am is what I am, I'm just going to let Jesus be who Jesus said he's going to be, and I'm going to trust him to be all of those things in my life. And then I'm going to just let you see what that is and what that looks like, and I'm not going to try to be something else. I'm just going to let Jesus be Jesus in my life. And that was the turning point for Paul. And on the other side of that, he was able to say, listen, I'm crowd-pressed on every side, but I'm not distressed. I'm being pressured, but the glory that's on the inside, the filling and the satisfying of my soul that Jesus has provided as being the Lord of my life, that's a greater force than the pressure that's coming at me from the outside, and therefore I'm not affected by that pressure in the way that I used to be. I'm still confused, wondering, am I really where I'm supposed to be in life? Am I, is my progress right? I'm still confused, am I in the will of God? He says, but I'm not in despair about that. I'm not without hope because what's inside of me is a greater witness that he's holding me in his hand in spite of the fact that I'm not sure what's going on on the outside. It's greater. It's bigger. He said, I'm still being persecuted. There's still people that hate me. There's relationships that are broken. There's people that are letting me down. He said, but I don't feel abandoned. I don't feel the pain of being abandoned by people because people are not what I'm trusting in to be the satisfaction of my life. I'm filled with Jesus. And he says, yeah, I get knocked down. The care of the churches comes upon me daily. I hear about the carnality of the Corinthians. I hear about the error of Apollos. I hear about how the Pharisees are coming in and they're turning people's faith away from Jesus. And every time I hear the news of that, it's a blow that knocks me down. But it's not hurting me the same way because I know who's in control. See, the glory, the light of the glory of God that's in me, in the face of Jesus Christ, this treasure that's in this earthen vessel is a higher power in my life than anything that can come at me from the outside. My soul is filled because I'm trusting in him. He's my hope. He's my dependence. He's the one that I put my trust in. And so he says, I can be always bearing about the death of Christ in my body, but the life of Christ is greater. I can be suffering, but that suffering is an opportunity to know him and to know his presence in me. And Paul says that three great things come out of this. He says, first of all, these things have become my witness. Verse 12 and verse 15. He says that death works in in us, but life works in you. Verse 15, he says that all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. Here's what that means. It means that when Christ is the one that you trust in completely, and when he's the one that's satisfying you from the inside out, that when people see you going through the same things they're going through, but yet you're not buckling in despair and in distress and in despondency and you're done and you quit, then that is to them a testimony that there's a power at work in your life and it gives them hope that might be real in their life as well. He says also, secondly, that what this produces in me is it produces a strength that increases instead of diminishes. 
Notice in verse 16, he says, For this cause we faint not, but though our outward man is perishing, yet our inward man is renewed day by day. He says that it produced in me a confidence that I know that he's going to be with me no matter what comes towards me in the future. And so therefore, I can repent. I can afford to repent of addictions and attitudes and attributes that, that, I, that I've used as mechanisms in my life because regardless of what happens to me outwardly, the inward glory grows as his presence grows in me. The suffering is related to the experience of his person. And he says, third, that these things accomplish in me a capacity and an ability to experience and know him in a greater way. He says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Suffering and experiencing Jesus go together. That's what Paul meant when he said in Philippians 3, he said, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering that I might be conformed into the image of his death. Paul said, I would trade every grace in my life to suffer because in suffering, I receive more of him. He says, that's what it's done for me. So God uses suffering in our lives to put us in a place of absolute dependence. And that dependence results in fullness. And that fullness results in freedom. And here's what happens when we trust him and he becomes the one who fills every part of the hollow core that's inside of us. Is that parts of our personality that maybe have been crushed by things that happened to us earlier in life or things that we were just born defective in, things that we guard because of fear that we're going to be hurt or wounded, those things can be restored and brought back to life, the life of Jesus in us. The ability to love people and be loved by people comes back and we can get close to people again because we can afford to be disappointed by them because we're not satisfied because of people. We're satisfied because of him. And we have the ability to feel joy and to feel that we're making an impact without help from substances or from other people or false means of doing it because he's in me and he's the one that's doing what he does in me. That's why David said in Psalm 23, verse 1, he says that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not what? Want. He said, he restores my soul. He's the one that fills me up on the inside. What an amazing claim, if you think about it, that Jesus made when he said, if any man thirst, if anyone is feeling the emptiness in their soul, this hollow, aching void that's seeking and demanding to be filled or numbed, For Jesus to say that he is able to fill that, it's the greatest claim. I mean, Jesus claimed that he can satisfy our core, our thirst, is a bigger claim than if he could cure cancer, mental illness, or even death itself. I mean, you think about the amount of money that's spent, the amount of effort that's expended, the the lengths and, and depths that people go to to try to fill that hollow core. And yet for Jesus to just simply say that if any man thirsts, he can come to me and drink. And so I ask you, by way of closing and by way of application, as we just consider and try to internalize this, where you're sitting right now, saved or not saved, believer or not believer, I ask you this question. Do you sense a wholeness in your soul? Is there in your life an unspeakable joy and an energizing conviction that life makes sense? that you fit and that you're doing something important? 
Or do you sit here tonight with an unbearable ache, a throbbing loneliness, a morbid sense of pointlessness that results in anger, cynicism, and frustration? And I ask the question, could it be that maybe there's a spirit of independence that you're still trying to control how your soul functions and works. Maybe afraid to just yield it completely to him and say, Jesus, you said that if any man thirsts, that we could trust in you completely. And like Paul, you could say that, man, I've been in the place where I've despaired even of life. But it brought me to the point where I no longer trust in myself, but in God which raises the dead. And what I find in him is that not only does he deliver, but that he will deliver. That his filling is absolute, his filling is whole, and it's complete. The proper response, if you find yourself in a place where you say, you know what, my, my, my spirit isn't as maybe dependent as it should be. The proper response is to repent. It's not a repentance from actions. Oh, I'm filling my life with... And you fill in the blank and say, I'm going to stop doing that. that. That's half repentance. That's repenting of the action. But the greater repentance is to repent of the independence. It's to repent of the motive behind the action. Why am I giving myself to these things? Why am I afraid to relate to people? Why am I afraid to let my guard down and be vulnerable? Why can't I just be kind or open myself up and relate to people? Why is it? And what you find at the core of it is that there's an independence. There's something I'm trying to protect. I'm trying to to hold this, manage it, fill it. The answer is surrender. The repentance is to trust. Paul said that we should not trust in ourselves but in God, which raises the dead. For God, who shined out of darkness, has caused the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to be in these earthen vessels. The excellency of the glory might be of God and not of us. My encouragement, my exhortation to you tonight, you who suffer, and we suffer, is that would you let that bring you to the place where you say, Jesus, you fill me. You fill me from the inside. That the light of the glory and the excellency of that treasure would overrule the opposing forces on the outside and that I might know your fullness, your wholeness, your unspeakable joy in my life. Father, we just thank you for your word tonight. We ask you, Lord, that you would make us complete in Jesus. That we would sense that wholeness inside. That we would no longer trust in ourselves that your work would deeply affect us, that the work of your cross, the work of what you provided, and that the fullness of your love would permeate us from the inside out. And I pray for all of us here in this place tonight. And we're asking you, Lord, that you would help us to see the areas of our life where in stubborn independence we have held on to control. We feel the effects of it. Tonight, we just want to yield to you. We want to open our hand and our heart. We want you to be the Lord of our life. So would you help us, Lord? We repent our independence. We repent. We ask you, Lord, that you would build trust. Help us to walk with you in your fullness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your cross. 
Thank you for your promise. We believe in you now for these things. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.